Train Sports Talk Podcast. Your host and conductor of the train, Anthony Smith. That's right. This train is building up ahead of steam each and every day that we are on. So what I want you to do is grab your ticket, get on board, enjoy the ride. This train is going to take you on a journey, turn some corners, and maybe pick up a few passengers along the way. So what do we have on tap for today's episode? Even I don't know that. So the best way to find out is tune in and enjoy the ride of the A-Train Sports Talk podcast with your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. And we're about ready to get this train on the track. So stay tuned. It's the A-Train Sports Talk podcast with your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. train sports talk podcast your host and conductor anthony smith the day after the super bowl what a game is all i can say what a game what a game was there some controversy controversy is no more than a perspective of how you see things if you think there was controversy then there was if there wasn't then there wasn't but there's some missed calls and some calls that shouldn't have been made. Probably so. What game does it not happen in? But overall, the referees pretty much kept the whistles silent. However, there is one play that is in question. Take to him. Burrow now scrambling. Fires deep downfield for Higgins. Oh, Jumps baby. up, pushes nice. over his defender, catches the ball, runs it into the end zone. There's no penalty no, flag. No. A 75-yard touchdown. Burrow to Higgins he, as he knocked over Jalen Ramsey really? and ran it into the end zone to give the Bengals the lead. Jalen Ramsey couldn't find the football, and by the time he did, T. Higgins found the ball, cut inside of him, and Joe Burrow, how about giving the Bengals lead a one-play drive? How about that? How about that for an answer in the explosive play category? Unbelievable. Joe Burrow manipulates the pocket and fires a strike, and T. Higgins finds the football. Ramsey doesn't. Touchdown, Bengals. Well, there was a reason Jalen Ramsey didn't find the football. Some people, though, happen to think, well, maybe it's just a little bit of karma coming back his way. So what am I leading into with today? Because this is still Black History Month, and I still have some more on Marlon Briscoe to get to you, as promised. Don't think I forgot about that. But NFL playoff officiating decisions. What happened on controversial calls, right and wrong? And what came next? Your instincts were correct if you felt like NFL officials were throwing more flags in the 2021 season. Penalties ticked up to one to 13.88 per game during the regular season. 
a bit higher than in the 2020 season at 13.14, but still way below where they were in 2019 at 16.17 and in 2018 at 15.87. That's the longer-term context as you watch this year's postseason games. It would be a surprise if we saw many penalty field games, and with any luck, we'll, I'll spend the next week talking about performance of players and coaches, not about the fouls that were called or uncalled against them. But there are many rules-based twists and turns to consider beyond flags in the 2020 AFC Championship game, for instance. Then NFL Senior Vice President Al Riveron allowed a review for a non-reviewable play. Ultimately, he reversed the call that should not have been looked at in the game that decided who would represent the AFC in the Super Bowl. So, moving on to what was, how about, Let's start with this. L.A. Rams, Cincinnati Bengals. What happened at the end of the Rams game-winning drive? Between 151-138 remaining in the fourth quarter. What happened? A four-play sequence on the most crucial possession of the game included four flags and one very big miss. Referee Ron Torbert's crew had thrown only four flags total up until that point. How it was resolved. The Rams got an extra first down, but also had a touchdown taken off the board during the wild sequence before taking the lead for good. The analysis. Sequence began with the Rams facing second and goal at the Bengals' eight-yard line. Torbett's crew decided against calling Bengals linebacker Jermaine Pratt for defensive holding or pass interference on a pass over the middle to running back Daryl Henderson Jr. Replay showed Pratt materially restricting Henderson from getting to the ball, both before Rams quarterback Matthew Stafford threw the ball and after. On the next play, Torbert's crew mobilized. It penalized Bengals linebacker Logan Wilson for holding Rams receiver Cooper Cup on another incomplete pass, giving the Rams a first down on their four-yard line. There appeared to be less aggressive contact by Wilson on that play, but we have seen that call made in other NFL games this season that were being officiated more tightly than the Super Bowl. The third play featured a touchdown pass to Cup, nullified by offsetting penalties on Rams offensive lineman Rob Havenstein for holding and Bengals safety Von Bell for unnecessary roughness. The penalty for Bell's late hit to Cup's head after the score was certainly justified, while Havenstein's hold was not dissimilar to many other blocks that went uncalled over the course of the night. On the fourth play, Bengals cornerback Eli Apple was penalized for pass interference as he attempted to keep Cup from catching the ball in the end zone, giving the Rams another set of downs they ultimately didn't need. It's important to view these calls as a whole because they expose the tightrope officials walk when they do what most fans say they want. Let the players play. Doing so invites players to ramp up their aggression and test how much they can get away with. By the end of the game, you have players blatantly grabbing each other, 
daring to be penalized. When officials inevitably throw their flags, they appear to be inconsistent or otherwise departing from the tone they have set during the rest of the game. In truth, they are responding to the players' response to that tone. Viewed on their own, none none of those flags was completely unjustified. But if you want to know why officials suddenly started throwing their flags in the final two minutes of the Super Bowl, the consequences of letting them play must be a big part of the conversation. How about in that same game? Rams, Bengals, Super Bowl. 14 minutes and 44 seconds remaining in the third quarter. What happened? Bengals receiver T. Higgins grabbed Rams cornerback Jalen Ramsey's face mask and turned his head, pulling Ramsey out of position as Higgins jumped for a Joe Burrow pass. How it was resolved, Higgins was not penalized, and his 75 and his ensuing 75-yard touchdown play was counted. Analysis, this was not an unexpected outcome for those who had been watching the game closely. Referee Tom Torbett's all-star crew threw only three flags in the first half, and all three were unavoidable. One for delay of game, one for false start, and one for unsportsmanlike conduct when an inactive Bengals player, cornerback Vernon Hargreaves III, ran onto the field to celebrate an interception in street clothes. That's a long way of saying there was not a single flag for a judgment foul, such as holding, pass interference, and yes, pulling the face mask. Keep in mind that Torbert's crew didn't throw a flag when Ramsey grabbed Higgins' jersey on a third down and completion at the goal line in the first quarter leaving the Bengals to kick a 29-yard field goal. Based on the way the first half was called, both teams were well advised to ramp up the aggression in the second half, and Higgins did just that. In every game, officials must judge whether contact with a player's face mask is forcible as required by the rulebook. Because officials are human, interpretations can vary. We have absolutely seen a flag for instances comparable to what Higgins did Sunday. But Torbert's crew to that point, at least, had clearly not been looking to insert itself into the game. It's up to the players on both sides to adjust. The touchdown would not have counted, and the Bengals would have been penalized 15 yards had a flag been thrown. So, what I want to know is, what do you think about the officiating in the game? Do you think the officiating had an outcome on the game? Or do you think the officials did the right thing by letting them play? Or were you turned off by the flag fest during the last two minutes of the game? I would really like to know what your thoughts are. So, you know, in the comment section, feel free to leave leave a comment. Chime in. I want to interact with you as you listen to this podcast. Also, what do you think about the game overall? Was it entertaining? Was it somewhat entertaining? Was it boring to you? What were the key points of the game? What did you like about the game, whether it be during the game, in game, after the game? What were some of the things that you liked about the game? One of the things, me personally, as I was watching the game unfold, one of the things I thought that was going to cost the Rams was the botched field goal for the extra point 
those things have it's like in a basketball game, in a tight game, and the player misses a free throw, misses a or goes fifty percent on a one and one situation. That missed that botched field goal attempt could have bit the Rams in the butt. However, as opportunistic as the Bengals were, they didn't take advantage of the opportunities that were afforded to them. Yes, they came out in the second half and took a lead. But in situations where your defense gets you the ball and all you can do is get three points, that, in essence, is leaving points on the field. And the Bengals left their share of points on the field. However, seeing how the game played out, especially in the first half, seeing how close the score was, in essence, the Bengals had the Rams exactly where they wanted them. Close enough to where we can still see you, and if we make a run, we can come back and bite you in the butt. But, once again, the offense didn't take advantage of the opportunity. Now, was it all on the offense? Was it part coaching? Or did it have something to do with the Rams' defense or a combination of all things above? I think there may have been a combination of all things. One of the things when looking at the game, and you know all of us that look at these games from the confines of wherever our domain or our residence is, we all have a tendency to be armchair quarterbacks. But if you listen to some of the commentators and some of the things that they say actually do make sense, was a thought that the Rams didn't want to bring an extra rusher up because they were basically rushing four. And at best, what little containment they had on Aaron Donald, it was double teams. And they were making his life miserable. I think one of the things that fired up that Rams defense, though, and I don't hear no one talking about this, is this fact right here. Remember the shove that Aaron Donald gave to Joe Burrow? Legal shove. Joe Burrow was still inbounds, so basically he hadn't given himself up. He hadn't slid. And a little melee ensued. I think that was the wake-up call for the Rams' defense that no one is talking about. Because then you've seen a different Rams' defense. Oh, let me also add this. In the fray, yes, the referees were trying to break it up. In the regular season, normally that's a flag and probably multiple infractions. However, no flag was thrown on that. So note that no flag was thrown on that melee. If that was a regular season game, I can guarantee you there would have been this flag, that flag, everywhere flag. It like old McDonald had a form, E-I-E-I-O, and on this form he had a lot of flags to throw. But the referees let the boys be boys. All they basically said was cool it, a little slap on the wrist. This is just a warning. Next time, okay, maybe flags. But I don't know about you, but it appeared to me as if the Rams' defense kind of woke up after that. It's like Aaron Donald had an aggression in him that was not lit until that happened. I will say this. Looking at the Bengals, they appeared to not be phased at one bit by the bright lights, the spotlight playing on the grandest stage they felt as if they belonged in this game and they felt that they had a right to win this game it's just that the Rams had just a little bit more in the tank 
Cooper Cup name, most valuable player, deservedly so. Or you could have given it very easily to Aaron Donald because eventually he made Joe Burrow's life a living hell. And how fitting was it? Last play. Who comes up with the defensive stop? Gets to the quarterback. Makes him throw a wild pass. Which, if you look at that, it wasn't too far off the mark. But Aaron Donald, the man who was celebrating, showing his ring finger, saying, I finally got me a ring. Want to talk about his post game? But the reporter was asked him, because rumor had went around, of course, he put it out there. He said, if I win a Super Bowl, I could retire. He didn't say he would retire, though. He said, I could retire. Hey, he'll go down as one of the best defensive players of all times. When asked about his retirement, he said, hey, I just want to enjoy this moment with my teammates and with my family. In other words, I don't have time to answer that question. Now, I, <clears throat> and I know somebody's listening to this. They're going to say, well, they're just doing their job. Well, how many times do you have to be that crash dummy? Remember Scott Frost, UCF? Is this your last game coaching? Look, I just want to go and enjoy the moment. I am from the old school train of thought to everything there's a season. Oh, by the way, that's also a biblical knowledge. Book of Solomon. And no, I'm not going to preach. But to everything, there is a season. There's a time to ask a question. There's a time not to ask a question. And reporters, sideline reporters or whatever, if you have seen this script played out, you should know that maybe this is not the time to ask that question because 9.9 times out of 10, that's the response you're going to get. In essence, keep the questions concerning the game that just wrapped up. If you do that, you will save yourself some embarrassment. That's just my advice. I've never went to no journalistic school, and I never went to learn how do you ask players questions. I'm that guy just like those of you who listen to this podcast or looking at the games or looking at the reporters. They're talking to the players, and they're asking them, is this your final game in a Rams uniform? Is this your final time coaching this team? I mean, Aaron Andrews, when she asked Roy Williams, that right there should have been the learning tool to use as to what questions not to ask coaches and our players after a hotly contested contest where they win, lose, or draw. I would just once on my bucket list in sports-related stuff Love to be able to ask the questions after the game to the star player. Because one of the questions I would not ask is, is this your last game? Or if it's a coach, is this your last time walking on this hollowed floor? Just food for thoughts. Well, it is time for me to take a break. I have ranted and rambled for 18 19 minutes. So I'm going to go ahead and take a break right here. And when I come back, 
I will have some more to give you in the lines of Black History Sports. Giving you some more on Marlon Briscoe. Stay tuned. It's the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. Be right back. It's the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. Wanting to let you know that this podcast is listener-supported. That's right. Driven by you, the listener. So if you want to advertise or sponsor a segment, simply reach out to me at 316-553-2010 or hit me up at a.trainsportstalk at gmail.com to get your ad or sponsorship ran on this podcast. Once again, a train sports talk podcast, your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. It's the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Black History Month. Black History Sports Month. Moments in Black History in Sports. On the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. So stay tuned. And enjoy. Moments in Black History and Sports on the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. This is Tracy, host of the Moonstar Podcast, and you are listening to A-Train. Buckle up, baby, and enjoy the ride. Woo! 
welcome back to my next segment of the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. And as promised on my last podcast and my intro on this one, I was going to get back into the Marlon Briscoe story. So, today, we look at how Marlon Briscoe broke the AFL's QB color barrier. In the second installment of this series about the life and legacy of Marlon Briscoe, Marlon American Pro Football's first black starting quarterback, focusing on how he continued to play the position as he transitioned to the pros. In 1968, a small quarterback from Omaha, Nebraska, took the field for the Broncos and made history as the modern American pro football's first black starting quarterback. He dazzled and delighted crowds at Mile High, but a year later he was gone from Denver. As we celebrate Black History Month, we're taking a closer look at the life and legacy of Marlon Briscoe. Today's tale recalls how he put himself in position to make history in spite of the pressure of racist stereotypes. So, this is the second story in the series. Part one focused on Briscoe's youth in South Omaha and how he reached the pros. For some time, Marlon Briscoe appeared destined to play at football's highest level. The only question was whether he'd be allowed to do it at quarterback. At the position, Briscoe had become an NAI All-American and etched his name atop nearly two dozen school records at Omaha University. Scouts from the AFL and NFL teams ventured to eastern Nebraska to get a glimpse of the star quarterback, who was also a thrilling scrambler, and they came away impressed. Just days before the 1968 AFL-NFL Common Draft, Gil Brandt, now in the Pro Football Hall of Fame for his player evaluation career, was effusive with his praise in a discussion with the World Herald's Larry Porter. Marlon has the greatest quickness of any college quarterback we've ever seen, Brant said. He's as good as any big-time quarterback in college right now and just one heck of a football player. Dave Smith, a scout for the Saints, was awed even more by Briscoe's arm strength. He's got the greatest arm I have ever seen of any quarterback, college or pro, Smith told Porter. He's the only man I have ever seen who can run to his left and throw the ball right-handed 55 yards through the air with complete accuracy. Playing quarterback at the pro level was truly his goal, but the idea of being a pioneer at the position made him a bit nervous too, he told Porter. Lately, it scared me, Briscoe admitted. I'll have to show them that I have mental leadership first. A quarterback's brain power is respected first, mechanics second. In that moment of apprehension, Briscoe drilled to the center of the very issue for black quarterbacks who hope to continue on in the AFL or NFL. What prevented them from progressing farther were not their physical or mental credentials so much as the perception of them. For decades, they cannot overcome the stereotypes of racial inferiority and how those assumptions jibed with the intangible qualifications ascribed to quarterbacks. Over the previous few decades as pro football evolved and became more pass-happy, 
Quarterback position became the focal point of every offense. Every team's vision of success revolved around having a player like John Unitas with his extraordinary passing skills, play calling, know-how, and talent as a leader. The ineffable qualities that made Unitas respected by his teammates became the working definition of the right stuff. And were inextricably bound up in future discussions of which qualities a quarterback ought to possess. Arthur William C. Roden wrote in the, in his book Third and Mile, Third and a Mile, to have an African American take the position of responsibility <clears throat> at a time when the nation was still polarized over basic questions of civil rights was not merely a departure; it was a subversion of much of the conventional wisdom of, of post-war America. Racist stereotypes regarding intellectual capacity worked against African Americans in all of society, and especially so when it came to AFL and NFL teams considering whether to give them the reins for their offense. There were a few things that society didn't think a black man could do, and three were think, throw, and lead, Briscoe says now. They didn't know how the fan reaction, manager reaction, player and teammate reaction. They didn't know how that was going to be. So even as black quarterbacks were finding success at the collegiate level, pro football's decision makers balked at nearly every opportunity, at once skeptical of their physical or mental abilities and leery of what fans, players and coaches would think. Instead, they took those stereotypes and tried to retrofit the quarterbacks to other positions they felt better suited them based on race. That, in short, is why Briscoe began his AFL career as a cornerback instead of a quarterback. As Briscoe prepared to play college football, he hoped to follow in the footsteps of Sandy Stevens as he prepared for the pros. He hoped not to. During his youth, Briscoe had closely followed Stevens' feats in reading Street and Smith College Football Magazine. The All-American quarterback for the University of Minnesota achieved remarkable success, leading the Gophers to two Rose Bowl appearances, one Rose Bowl victory, and the 1960 National Championship. As a pro football hope, Stevens was determined to continue playing quarterback. To that end, his only option as a black player at that time was to leave the country and play in the Canadian Football League. Although he was selected in the first round of the AFL draft and the second round of the NFL draft, those teams intended for him to change his position. Briscoe approached the same juncture in his career shortly after the draft. For all the chatter about his tremendous arm strength and agility, no one jumped at the chance to draft a potentially revolutionary quarterback. He clearly had a lot of physical tools, says Dirk Chatelaine of the Omaha World Herald, but I think the stereotype was really strong racially and also really strong because of how small he was. So it was kind of a double whammy in trying to be a professional quarterback. Instead, the Broncos drafted him in the 14th round, intent on converting him to a cornerback. In the process of scouting Briscoe, Stan Jones, Denver's defensive line coach and scout for the team, had been up front with him. Jones told him he was a talented quarterback, they were looking at him as a defensive back. The Broncos defense truly did need help. No team in the AFL 
allowed more points than them in 1967. But whether a converted quarterback could do the job was a leap of faith. The magician had one more trick up his sleeve, though, in hoping to prove his quarterbacking skills. His college coach, Al Coniglia, told him that Denver was one of the few teams that practices in view of fans and media. Briscoe later told Rowan. Coniglia encouraged Briscoe to try to get a tryout at the position in hopes of drumming up media for fan support. They told me straight out that they were going to draft me, but they were going to draft me as defensive back, Briscoe says. And it was nothing I could do because there was no black quarterback in the pros. I negotiated my contract and I told the Broncos one thing. I said, I'll play defensive back, but you've got to give me a three-day trial at quarterback. They thought I was crazy. How are you going to be drafted that late in the man where you play? I said, well, that's my desire. I believe I can play the position. Broncos decision makers accepted the gambit. The tryout in some ways was a success. Briscoe recalls having an excellent performance, and it did help drive the Denver Post to write an article on him. In other ways, it was also not successful. The trial had not exactly been fair, as he said in the third and, and a mile, in that if other quarterbacks at the trial each got 10 throws during the drill, he only got five. The deck appeared to be stacked against him, and it was hard to imagine that the outcome wasn't predetermined. I can remember him being there when he tried out, said Eric Crabtree, said receiver Eric Crabtree recalls. We know he wasn't going to be a quarterback. At that time, there wasn't any black quarterbacks. Everybody who was a black quarterback became a defensive back. That was just automatic. Indeed, that's what happened. What I'm going to do right here is I will conclude this story on the other side of this break. So stay tuned to the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. This is Tracy, host of the Moonstar Podcast, and you are listening to A-Train. Buckle up, baby, and enjoy the ride. Woo! Welcome back to the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast with your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. Continuing this Black History Month theme. More on Arlen Briscoe, a story that has really caught my attention to see how he has overcome. And as I read read the story, look at the story, it just reinforces no matter what we're going through in life, no matter what obstacles are thrown our way, either individually or collectively as people. If you have a determined mind, you can overcome. That being said, 
Let me go ahead and get on back into this story as promised. As the sounds of literary voice resonates in the background. So, to the press, head coach Lou Saban professed that he was very pleased with his progress at quarterback. But for four days later, a new headline appeared. Briscoe to get test at cornerback. Still, Briscoe took the move in stride, eager to make the team. In spite of a pulled hamstring, he continued to make progress and started an exhibition game against the Bengals. But during the action, Briscoe re-aggravated the injury and then missed more time. As he healed, the Broncos suffered more significant injury news. Their expected starting quarterback, Steve Tenzai, Tenzai fractured his collarbone in an exhibition game a little more than three weeks before the September 15th season opener. By September 11th, Tenzai had not healed enough to play, so Denver sidelined him for two weeks on the inactive list. The Broncos scrambled to find a solution. John McCormick, who came out of retirement to return to the Broncos in 1968, started the opener against the Bengals. McCormick failed to muster a scoring drive before he was benched early in the third quarter, and the Broncos lost by two touchdowns. The following week, his backup, Jim LeClaire, became the starter against Kansas City. Became the starter. Against Kansas City, he faced a much better team and suffered worse struggles. He threw three interceptions and zero touchdown passes as Denver's offense failed to score a single point. Denver's season was quickly falling apart, and it wasn't like they were losing close games. They weren't even competitive. Something had to change, both for the team's hopes and to keep fans coming to games. Briscoe, meanwhile, was on the men. At some point during the week, of practice before the Broncos' third game, still expecting to play on defense. He went to the locker room and got the surprise of his life. There in his locker was a new jersey, number 15. I turn around, and there's Lou Saban and Stan Jones, Briscoe says. Stan was smiling at me. I was running what he was smiling at me for. And Lou Saban said, my friend, you see that number 15 in your locker? I said, yes, sir, he said. That's your jersey. You're now a quarterback. Man, my heart started pounding. If you'd ever see a 20-year-old have a heart attack, that was it. And he said, put your jersey on and let's get out to practice. And that's how it started. Immediately, Briscoe made a strong impression. We used to have to defend against him in practice, and he was elusive then, all pro defensive end Rich Jackson says. He had a spiral. He could throw the ball. He seemed like he was gifted. I guess that's why they called him the magician, because he was able to do some things that other quarterbacks were unable to do. Perhaps that's why, with only a few practices under his belt, Saban and the Broncos thrust Briscoe into action. In the third game, LeClaire tried it out to start once again, but he fared a little better versus the Patriots than he did the previous week. Entering the fourth quarter, LeClaire had completed five of 16 passes with one interception. Denver trailed by just a touchdown, and soon after the period began, the Broncos blocked a punt and got possession at the Boston 16-yard line. On the next 
play, Leclerc threw his second interception of the day. Saban fed up, pulled Leclerc, and decided to insert Briscoe into the game when the Broncos got the ball back. Still only trailing by seven points. The game within reach, Briscoe was getting an honest-to-God chance to prove himself at the position. He hadn't had time to learn much of the offense, so he had to rely on his raw ability. I didn't have the cerebral training at that position, Briscoe says. I went out there that first game with about six plays. I didn't even think I was going to play. I didn't know I was going to play. But hey, of all the remarkable things that ever happened to me as a player, I was able to go out there with no training, with professional football at quarterback, and still we almost pulled the game out. On his first play, Briscoe found Crabtree for a pickup of 22 yards. The drive stalled shortly afterward, but he had helped them get into scoring range, though the 24-yard field goal try sailed wide left. The Patriots scored a field goal in their next possession, pushing their lead to 10 points as Briscoe appeared to go back under center. On the first play of Denver's next drive, Briscoe ran for seven yards. On the second, he threw to Billy Van Heusen for 21 more. After the two-minute warning, Denver drew a pass interference call that moved them to the Buffalo 31-yard line. Briscoe then gained 19 yards on the ground. Two plays later, he scrambled to the right for a 12-yard touchdown. With a little over a minute left, the Broncos held Boston to a three and out to get the ball back with 43 seconds remaining. At that point, with the clock and his pro inexperience working against him, Briscoe's nerves got the best of him. He scrambled on the first play, and time ran out two plays later. The loss stung, but he had shown that he could move the ball and put points on the board. And more than that, he showed that a black man could handle leading an offense. He made history as the AFL's first black quarterback following in the footsteps of Willie Thor, who in 1953 became the NFL's first black quarterback to throw a pass, and George Talaferro, who was the first black player to start a quarterback. Though the position's role at that time was more as a blocker than the version we now recognize. In the modern game, though, Briscoe's moment was different. With all the expectations of what a quarterback had to be, the added pressure of being the first of his race in that role is difficult to fathom. I prepared myself before I got in, but prior to the game, it ran across my mind a lot. He said after the game in the New York Times. I think other black athletes like Jackie Robinson must have had the same feeling. Briscoe earned the start the next week against Cincinnati. But after he struggled in the first half, Saban substituted a mostly healed Tenzie for him. With a fourth quarter touchdown pass, Tenzie saved the game for the Broncos and at last got them into the win column. With Denver's expected starter back on in the fold, Briscoe returned to a reserve role. A week later, Tenzai threw a touchdown, and Denver's defense, defense picked off Joe Namath five times to top the eventual Super Bowl champs. In week seven, though, Tenzai collar, Tenzai's collarbone was returned. Midway through the second quarter, the Chargers, against the Chargers, he left the game after re-aggravating the injury. Though trailing 24-3, Briscoe gave a good showing. 
Now, having practiced for about a month as a quarterback, Briscoe was able to rely on his arm more and completed 17 of 30 passes for 237 yards, three touchdowns, and two interceptions. He also added 68 yards on the ground. Battling through his shoulder injury, Kenzai remained the starter for the next game against Miami, but it didn't go much better. Before that, before what was then the largest home crowd in franchise history, Kenzai completed one of nine pass attempts and threw three interceptions in the first half. The crowd had been booing the Broncos in general and the 6-5 and five, and the 6-5 Tinsley in particular, the Omaha World Herald's Walter Provost wrote. A streamer of toilet paper had flown from the belligerent south stands when Tinsley threw his third interception of the first half. After halftime, the Dolphins promptly drove for a touchdown to go up 14-0. Saban called on the plucky backup to spark something, anything. With running backs Floyd Little and Fran Lynch pacing the offense, Briscoe picking up yards here and there and a little help from a timely holding penalty, the Broncos moved into the red zone. On second down from the 12-yard line, Briscoe scrambled from the right side of the field to the left for a touchdown. On the ensuing kickoff, the Broncos recovered a fumble and scored the tying touchdown soon after. In the fourth quarter, with both teams knotted at 14 and less than five minutes remaining, Briscoe became a hero to the Mile High Faith. He found Van Houston downfield for a 41-yard gain and then threw to Crabtree for nine more yards as Denver drove deep into Miami territory. On first and goal with 158 left, Briscoe approached the line and surveyed the defensive formation from the 10-yard line. Upon noticing that the safety and middle linebacker had vacated the middle of the field to better defend the outside threats, he changed the play to a quarterback draw. Slicing through the defense, Briscoe scored the game-winning touchdown. As the game ended, Provost took note of the crowd's reaction as more than 1,000 1, fans were waiting in the South Grandstand to hail the conqueror. Some even waited more than an hour to see him as he left the stadium. You could run for mayor, a fan yelled to him. Dolphins head coach George Wilson was equally impressed. There were 44,000 fans out there who thought Briscoe was great, he said. Now you can make that. 44,001, counting me. The paper the next day was a whirlwind. Two of the three stories on the front of the Denver Post sports section were devoted to Briscoe. Inside the section, four stories about him took up a full page. Not long after the Associated Press named him AFL Offensive Player of the Week. Still, the Broncos retained Tenzai as their starter for the next three games. For fans and media light, the move was somewhat befuddling. You still can't figure out those Broncos, wrote K.O.T., a sports editor for the Louisville Times. Marlon Briscoe gets scores, but Lou Saban seems to imply that Steve Tenzak will forever be his number one quarterback. Maybe it's a trust between a helter-skelter offense that may explode for points at any time or a system that in the long run may produce a consistent winner. Briscoe's kind of offense is more exciting for the spectators. The implication that Tenzai would lead Denver to winning football in the long run wasn't looking too good either, though. In the three weeks after the Dolphins game, he helped Denver get a blowout win over the Patriots, but then he mustered just one touchdown in the two losses that followed. In the second game against Houston, Tenzai completed just one pass before re-injuring his shoulder. This time, he was done for the year. Regardless of whether the Broncos, pro football, or the country were ready, here came Marlon Briscoe, starting quarterback. Oh,
And this is the conclusion of part two of this entire story. I'm going to go ahead and give you the heads up. Coming up on my next podcast will be part three of this story, and I'll probably break it down like I did this into two parts. The Making of the Magician, part three. Marlon Briscoe moves into the spotlight. Well, this has been another edition of the A-Train Sports Talk podcast. I hope you have enjoyed it. I hope you have enjoyed the format in which I have brought it to you. You got a little bit of your mainstream, but you also got some black history. And we're going to continue this train rolling down the track on this Marlon Briscoe story. as It is a very intriguing story, to say the least. So until the next time, take care of yourself and each other. And God bless. This is your host and conductor of the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, Anthony Smith. I'm out.